Thank you for tuning in to the Essential Church Podcast, a church where we focus on restoration over denomination. If you're in the Virginia Beach area and would like to find out more about Essential Church, visit our webpage at EssentialChurch.com. As I mentioned last week, I am looking forward to summer for all kinds of reasons, uh, probably more than any other summer ever. Uh, Not just because the summer months are here, but sort of metaphorically, it's like the whole world is sort of emerging into summer as we come out of the dark winter of the COVID season that's lasted a lot longer than many of us had thought it would. Um, And so we've been doing a series just starting last week and this week about called Aloha Summer. It's all about sort of what we're saying hello to, what we're saying goodbye to, and it comes out of that verse from Song of Songs where... Uh, this woman who's, who's coming out of sort of a dark, lonely time in her life, and she's about to get married, and she's all excited about this new season that's coming, and she says, see, look, the winter is gone, the, the time of rains is over, and so she's looking forward to this new time where spring has come, and the flowers are coming up, and the time of singing is here, and just sort of looking forward to better days that are to come. And so last week, we began off just talking about what it's like when uh, we begin a relationship with God. We talk about this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that will enjoy for all eternity and, and how that begins. And, and oftentimes this process is really slow when we become a new creation and we realize that it's happening because the process of becoming a mature uh, Christian or become, uh, to growing in your relationship with God is a slow process. It happens over time. And when you think about what it means to become a, however you want to say it, whether it be a mature Christian or a solid Christian or a mature believer, or maybe you might call somebody a spiritual giant, there's a lot of debate as to how that happens or what that looks like. And because of that, it's, we have a hard time knowing really what God expects of us. And what's really interesting is the way that churches also sort of respond to that and the way that they're structured and what they do. And a lot of folks, we, we get misdirected as to what it means to be, whatever you call this, a spiritual giant, mature believer, a strong Christian. And, and it comes out in, in one of a couple different ways. One of them is sort of perfectly portrayed by Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Uh, I, honest confession, I've never watched a full episode of Simpsons, but I've watched a lot of clips uh, of it. And of course, Ned Flanders and his family is one that I know well. Being a pastor, you can't help but at least at some point come across some Ned Flanders reference because he, he's a picture of... The idea of spiritual maturity, which basically is somebody who's what I would call an obnoxious smiler. You know what I'm talking about? You, you get this, the idea. And maybe you see people at this church, maybe you see people at other churches, that's kind of how you picture, oh, if I become a really strong Christian, I'm going to be one of those obnoxious smilers. Hi, how are you? It's so good to see you. I'm so glad you're here this morning. And I'm just happy. Now, I'm not knocking those who are greeting you at the front door. I'm hoping... <laughs> I'm hoping when you see a guy like stand at the front door, you know, he's just like that. He's just happy that he really is happy to see you. It's not like he's plastered this smile on his face where he's saying one thing but thinking another. So good to see you. I wish you wouldn't get in my way. Please move along. I don't really like you. Just get on my face. You smell a little bit. Just people moving. It's so good to see you. Hi. Um, sometimes we have the idea that that's, that's what it means to be a strong Christian is, is that you sort of look like Ned Flanders, and so you look around the room, and you see all these really well-dressed people. All these people seem to have their life together, and you think to yourself, well, there must be something wrong with me. I must not have a good relationship with God because I don't look like that kind of Ken and Barbie doll image of Christianity, and so there must be maybe something wrong with me. Maybe I'm just not there yet. Maybe at some point I'll get to the point where I can kind of plaster a smile on my face every single day, but it seems like as if right now I'm not all that happy right now, and I'm kind of frustrated because life isn't always perfect like it is for these strong Christians that I see 
over there. And it's this idea that a mature Christian is this, what I would call the obnoxious smiler, that oftentimes pushes people to act like something they're not. It's what pushes Christians to become what the world would call a hypocrite, because they kind of know deep down that's not who you really are, and you don't really act like that, you don't really talk like that, but if you think that's what it means to be a mature believer, sometimes you'll be pushed, or at least feel pushed, to conform outwardly and become the obnoxious smiler. Others think that spiritual growth, spiritual maturity is all about attendance or activity, and so they have this sense that they got to be here every time the, churches are, the church doors are open. And so they'll be here from the time we open to the time we leave. Now, by the way, the staff loves these people. Uh, we really do. We love all of you who just are here every time the doors are open. But I'll say this. If you're doing it because you think that's what's going to make you a mature believer or what that, that's what makes you spiritually strong, then you're misguided. And I hope you get that out of this. There's nothing wrong with coming all the time. By all means, come more. Um, but if you think that's what makes you a strong believer. So some people will come every single time the churches are open, and some churches will cater to this. And I was at a church one time years ago. They literally had an activity every single day of the week. And I remember I was, I was already at church for two to three hours per day, five days a week, just because you know, I knew I wanted to go into the ministry. And so I was just you know, trying to serve and help out, trying to get whatever opportunities I could. I remember coming to the pastor and saying, hey, um, Something I needed for my, uh, they had a Sunday school program that's like I was teaching a Sunday school class. I was like, hey, I need this for my Sunday school class. And he says, hey, if you'll come to Tuesday night visitation, I'll get that for you. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm already here five days a week, and you're telling me that you can't help me do something on one of those days that I'm here unless I come a sixth day of the week? Because the idea was, is if you really want to be a strong, mature believer, then you need to be here for every single opportunity that we offer. Now, what we've tried to do at Essential is basically to say, I'm asking for three hours of commitment from you a week. You know, for you to, to you have the opportunity to grow in your relationship with God, I'm asking for three hours of commitment. One is this hour right now, where you'd come before God and you'd worship him and you would learn about him and show your love for God by worshiping him and learning about his word. That's what we're doing right now. Secondly, that you would serve an hour. Uh, most of those opportunities are on Sunday morning, some of them are Sunday night. Um, you know, with our youth, uh, that you would serve an hour, that you would give back, that you would display the love of Christ by serving those who maybe are nothing like you, or maybe uh, who need your help, or maybe need your, uh, what, what God has gifted you with, whether that be in the parking lot, or in the foyer, or in the kids' church, and so you would just serve and give back, and then lastly, that you would get together in some form of group, whether that be a small group, a life group, a table group, something, where you'd be getting together with others who would help you to work out what it means to have a loving relationship with Jesus Christ, and so those are, basically, we can say, those are three hours per year week that you need to give over to God if you're going to grow in your relationship with him. Now, you want to do more than that, that's fine. But if you do more than that because you think that makes you more spiritual, then you're misguided. And so I don't ever want to give you the idea or the impression that you have to be doing all these things in order to have a growing relationship with God. I hope you've never felt guilted into being at something at church. We just simply say, if you miss it, you're going to miss out. I mean, hey, it's all, it's all a matter of you. You want to miss a night of worship, that's fine. Uh, it's going to be amazing, and you'll, I think you'd really get a lot out of it. But you don't have to be here to show that you have a great relationship with God. The third group, and this is one that really has taken over, especially in, in this, you know, over the past 20, 30 years, maybe even longer. And this is the idea that uh, the more you know about the Bible, the stronger Christian you are. And a lot of times people uh, get this idea that uh, I'm somehow inferior because I don't know the Bible as well as somebody else. Maybe you've been around that person who seems like they've got a verse for everything. They can quote a verse for everything. Sometimes you guys think I'm able to do that. Um, Part that's because you realize I memorize this stuff before I get up here on a Sunday morning, right? I don't just do this on a typical Tuesday. I mean, I, 
I've gotten better and better over the years, and I have, you know, increased my Bible knowledge over the years, but I remember I used to look at people, like when I went off to seminary, this, that's like Bible class where you learn the Bible, um, here's what's funny, so this is, this is the equivalent of showing up at a BMX road race with training wheels on your bike, okay? My Bible had the tabs on it. So you kids in the digital age have no idea what I'm talking about because to find any book of the Bible, you just open it up and you type in John and it pops up. Well, back when you had this big, thick book that had all 66 books in it, where is Leviticus? I don't know. But so what we would have is so Bible for beginners on the sort of the binding of the Bible, it would kind of have the labels of where each book is, right? And I remember people would see that, you know, they'd see me have these, the, the tabs and they would be like, Where'd you get that? Like in the kids' department? Like in the preschool training wheels? I mean, does your Bible have the pictures in it, you know, like for each chapter, like like the kids' Bible? But hey, no shame. I went off to seminary not knowing a whole lot about the Bible. And so that was all I could do when somebody says, turn to Haggai. I'm like, is that even a book of the Bible or is he just a joke? I don't even know if Haggai is actually a thing or was that a person? I don't know who. So I'd be like, oh, there's H-A-G. Okay, let me try this one and I'd open so that was me when I went off to, off, off to seminary. Um, now, the issue with this is Bible knowledge plays a part, but if it becomes the end in itself, it, it's counterproductive. I remember while I was at that seminary, um, the, the Bible that I read the most growing up, and even still do, is the NIV. You know, I don't care which translation you like, but that was kind of the one I grew up with, um, was the NIV. And I remember there's, we used to have these great guest speakers that would come in, and this one guy came in, his name was Bruce Waltke. And he was actually one of the primary translators of the Old Testament for the NIV translation committee. And I'm sitting here, like, looking at this guy, like, my goodness. And he's, like, talking about these passages in the Old Testament, about the discussions they would have about how to translate these Hebrew words into English, as we know. I'm just, like, mind-blown by this whole thing. And it's like, this is, like... Uh, this is like a sports superstar for somebody who's really nerdy like me when it comes to Bible stuff. Okay, this is kind of who I'm looking at. I'm like in awe of this guy. But I'll never forget what he said. Somebody asked him a question in the Q&A part. It says, what was it like being a part of the NIV translation committee? Like, what was it like being a part of that? And I'll never forget what he said. He says, we, we gathered together in Europe. I want to say it was, in, it was in Greece to have a Zondervan through this party kind of like a, sort of to celebrate the, the finishing of the translation. And he says, I remember during the party, I kind of slipped out on the balcony and was just kind of having some time out there. And he says, there was two thoughts that, that hit me at that moment that I, I, I left feeling very empty and depressed. One is, at that point in my life, I had never known the scriptures better than I did at that point in my life. But the second one was the realization that God had never felt farther from me than he did right at that moment. He said, what had happened is that God and Jesus became an entity or a subject to, to learn about, but not a person to get to know. And, I, and I, it just that hit me because so often, sometimes when it comes to doing things to grow in your relationship with God, sometimes they become a means in the end. Like, well, you know, if I'm maybe really spiritual, I need to get up at, you know, 5 a.m., an extra hour before everybody else gets up in the house and do my Bible study, right? They have that quiet time and you feel like as if, you know, you, if you did it, you just check off the box and that means I'm doing good. If it's separated out from your relationship with God, it isn't. And what ends up happening when you have this mindset that spiritual maturity is all about what you know, uh, it can really wreck a lot of things. Like for some of you, you will not volunteer uh, or sign up to serve in children's ministry, youth ministry, or to lead any kind of group. And the number one reason given is what? I don't know enough about the Bible to do that. 
See, that's because you've equated spiritual growth, you know, being a, being a spiritual giant or a mature Christian, all with having a lot of Bible knowledge. Now, just a little newsflash, by the way. Debbie is absolutely amazing when it comes to our kids' church. She actually sorts through all the curriculum and gives you very easy bite-sized pieces to just read and just be able to get up and share it with the kids. And by the way, if you ever want to really learn the Bible, start teaching it. Serious. Do you learn more when you sit in a class or when you teach the class? When you teach it. Because there's this sense that you, there, there's an obligation. I've got to be able to communicate this. And so you'll be able to, get to read to understand so you can communicate it to somebody else. Just begin. Just, just sign up just to be a part of kids ministry or even youth ministry um, or small groups. You realize most of our small group curriculum is on a DVD? Like the Bible knowledge it takes is for you to insert DVD or plug in the computer thing. We can walk you through the instructions and hit play. And then afterwards, lead a discussion and say something like, so what did you think about that? Or most of the time, there's questions right there. I'll never forget one of the guys who led a discussion. I'm sitting in a small group, and this guy, he was awesome because he had no sense. A lot of times, like, if I attend a small group, people get intimidated by me being there. Don't, okay? Just, 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 just let me hang out, right? And he wasn't. And I remember I asked him, I said, I said, are you okay with me being here? He goes, I don't care if you're here. All I'm doing is just reading the questions out of the book. That's it. That's, that's it. So, so don't get intimidated and think that you can't lead in kids' church or in youth ministry or start a table group or a small group or a life group simply because you don't know enough Bible. That's how you learn the Bible is by doing that and being involved in it because what you've been doing up to now hasn't gotten you any further, right? It just hasn't. So, so take that step and go down that path. Everybody, I guarantee you, who serves in kids' ministry and leads and teaches say they learn the Bible so much better. And some of them will even say, Steve, I'll be honest, I get more out of the kids' message than I do your message. <laughs> Maybe I'm an idiot, but that one's a lot easier to understand. Cool. Then, then go there. Do that. Uh, other things that happen when you, when, you, when you think that Bible knowledge is all about spiritual maturity is you'll find that you will church hop a lot. You will skip around from church to church to church to church to church. And it's because there's this idea that you're like on this mystic quest for the deeper knowledge of the scriptures, Right? You know, I want my pastor to go deep. I'm, I'm going to first go to Mark Twain. Mark Twain, he has just a way of sort of, you know, comically sort of putting things into perspective. He, he said it this way. He said, I'm not troubled in the Bible by the things I don't understand. I'm troubled by the things I do understand and am not able to do. Just let that sink in for a little bit. Before you go searching for the deep, are you doing what it is that you figured out? Are you doing what it is that you've learned? Somebody else made this comment um, to me. They were bragging about their church and their pastor, and I just sit and smile. And, and it's, I don't mean to take it personally, but it's sort of like, well, my pastor, and I know you. Uh, <laughs> but they said, they said, you know, some pastor's sermons are nothing more than junk food and baby food but real pastors will give the solid meat. My pastor, though, he serves up filet mignon every week. So I started thinking, like, what would I describe my sermon as? And I thought about it. I'm like, you know, I think it's more soul food, right? You know, everybody loves it. Everybody can eat it. 
Some people like you, though, are a little too, too some people like you who, who want that filet mignon, you're a little too pretentious to sit down and have some good fried chicken and red beans and rice. Not only that, you think that soul food is really easy to make. <laughs> Let's just say we've had your fried chicken, we don't want any more. <laughs> but really good soul food, somebody really knows how to do it, it's a combination of two things, right? A lot of experience. Like they got these recipes from their mama. They've done a lot of trial and error. They've had a lot of bad meals over the years, right? They've got a lot of experience. That's why young people don't cook good, good soul food, right? And there's a lot of love with the way they make it, right? That's soul food. And, and I hope to serve you up soul food. Now, and that's where I say this. You're getting a lot of deep stuff, but like soul food, it's really hard to make it look that easy. And it's really hard to make something that everybody's gonna love out of really simple ingredients, and that's what I hope to do in the messages each, each morning, uh, that I'd be able to come in here and be able to take something complex from God's, tr- God's word and be able to serve it up to you in a way that it really nourishes your soul. Not that you'd go out and brag about how deep you got into something. Sometimes people walk and go, wow. So do you realize, by the way, I've, I've said this before, do you realize, by the way, I use Greek and Hebrew every week. I just don't feel the need to get up here and go, well, in the Greek, it says. It's kind of funny because I'm actually going to be doing that later in this message, but... <laughs> I don't know if I'll go into all, I don't know. Anyways, it happens every week. I just don't feel the need to like sort of brag about that. The other thing that's really funny about this braggadocious comments of going deeper and, and the idea that spiritual maturity is all about, you know, knowing more and more scripture. What's really funny is the primary text that's used to support this idea, even that quote that I heard, comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Okay, maybe some of you all read this, heard this. It says, this is where Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, a very immature church. He says, you know, I couldn't address you as, as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. You're mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And indeed, you're still not ready. You're worldly. So there it is, like right there. That's the whole analogy of, uh, of spiritual milk versus, you know, the solid word, the filet mignon, right? Here's what's like ironically funny about that passage when it's being used to talk about how spiritual maturity is all about going deep. Do you know what Paul talks about at the end of chapter 1 and all through chapter 2, right before this in the context? He talks about the fact that the Corinthians were so, so focused on a deeper knowledge. And he says, you realize when I showed up, I came to you and you guys thought I was just an ignoramus? Do you realize I profess to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? I didn't come to you with the wisdom of the world and, and searching after some deeper knowledge. I just preached Christ. And it's a, it's a message that's absolutely foolishness to most people, but to people who really understand it, it, that's the wisdom of God. And then he goes on and he continues to talk about how the problem in the Corinthian church was they were all about this knowledge and about bragging about how smart they were, but yet they were such spiritually mature people. In chapter 8, he says, you know, your knowledge, it puffs up. It just makes you arrogant, makes you think that you're something that you're really not. You're all, you're all, you're all puffed up. You're all inflated. You have this big, too big of an ego. He says, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love is what builds up. And if you read through the book, what you'll end up saying, what he's saying is, all of you people out there are bragging about how mature you are because of how much you know, but if you guys would just love each other. And so what does he say when he gets to like the culmination of his frustration, which is 1 Corinthians 13? He says, he says, you know, if I were to speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and of all knowledge, but have not love, I am Nothing. And yet people use this passage to be able to try to, try to uh, prove the idea that spirit or spiritual growth and maturity is all about how much Bible you know 
And if you know more Bible than somebody else, then that means you're really mature. Where Paul gets at when he gets to 1 Corinthians 13, he's like, listen, it's at the end of the day, if you don't love, you're not mature. The reason why you're not mature is because you don't even have the basics. And so what does he say? He, he, he talks about love and what love is, and he brings it all to this crescendo. Maybe you've heard it at a wedding. Maybe you've got it at, at some, you've maybe seen it at like your grandmother's house, a quilt on the wall. It says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, what he's basically saying is spiritual maturity at the end of the day is about faith, hope, and love. At the end of the day, when you look at all of the Christian life and boil it all the time, you want to know what it means to be a spiritually mature Christian, what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, you want to know what it means to be a real spiritual giant. It's somebody who is doing really well and has grown in their faith in God, their love for God, and their hope that they look forward to all eternity. But he looks at the Corinthians church, he says, you guys are so mature, let's just begin with the most basic of all of them, and that is love. That's what he's saying. He's like, three, these three main, these three things are, are like, if you boil it all down, this is, what, this is what really matters. And you don't have any of them, so let's just start with love. If you don't have any of it, you want to start somewhere, start with love. Now, what's interesting about this faith, hope, and love, if you read through the New Testament, my men's group, I've done this study with them a couple of times. If you read through the New Testament, when Paul, who's the one who, that's the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, he writes these letters to churches. If you look in the opening chapter of, of what he writes to Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all those books, you'll notice Faith, hope, and love appear in every single one of them. And he evaluates the church and how they're doing as far as their maturity goes based on their faith, hope, and love. So, for instance, a very mature church like the Thessalonian church, he writes, that, he writes them this. He says, We remember before God and our Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right there. That's a mature church. Uh, he says a very similar thing over to the Colossian church. Uh, he says, we always thank God, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all God's people. And the faith and love, where do these come from? They spring from the hope you have stored up in you uh, for heaven, about which you've already heard the true message of the gospel that's come to you. Now, compare that over to uh, the Ephesian church. And he says to them this, he says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks and remembering all my prayers. And then he goes on and says, But I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope that we have, call, uh, that we have for the one who, uh, in the one who's called us according to his riches and glorious uh, inheritance for all God's people. What's he saying there? You got the faith and you got the love. I'm praying that you get the hope too. And if you go through the New Testament books, you'll see that Paul will, go, will, will say this. Now, when you get to the Galatian church, he doesn't mention any of them. He just says, Idiots. Seriously? Like, they're that. <laughs> there's like, okay, so there's the mature church, like the Thessalonian church. There's a church that's got some growing to do, like the church in Ephesus. There's the immature church, which is the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth, he doesn't talk about their faith, hope, and love at all in the opening chapter. He just talks about how they're just chasing after all the wrong things, and he finally gets to faith, hope, and love by chapter 13. He says, you're just spiritual infants. Over in Galatians, he's not even sure they're saved. He's like, idiots, you guys have missed the gospel. As a matter of fact, if you look in the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says this. He doesn't say, I thank my God for your faith, hope, or love. He just says, I thank God because of the grace he's given you. What's he saying? I'm thankful that you realize that Jesus Christ died for your sins and gave you grace. And then he goes on, he says, but I really wish you'd grow up. That's, that's sort of a summary of 1 Corinthians. Uh, however, the Galatian church he looks at them. They don't even have the gospel right. They've messed up the gospel. They don't even understand what it means to have a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. They think it's all about earning stuff and works, and they're going back into Jewish laws and other stuff. And he looks at me, he goes, idiots, how did you guys mess up the gospel? Who told you this, this, this ridiculous idea? 
And so if you look through the Bible, you'll see how do you evaluate somebody's maturity and their growth and their relationship with God? You look at their measure of faith, hope, and love. And so just kind of in our time together this morning, I just kind of want to look at that and what that means. And by going back to that, uh, the passage out of Thessalonians where he says, we remember, God, we remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so he says, your work uh, produced by faith. This is uh, kind of similar. If you look over in James chapter 2, around verse 12, he has this discussion about what faith is. And so often, our English language betrays us because we don't translate the word faith very well into English. Uh, because we would say, I have faith, but we would say, I believe in God. And it doesn't really make good grammatical sense to say, I, I faith in God. That doesn't, that doesn't make grammatical sort of sense in English. However, if you... For those of you who want something deep this morning, if you look at the Greek and the Greek word, the word faith and the word belief are, are translated, so it's, one, it's the same Greek word that we translate. It's just simply the English language doesn't allow us to say, I faith God. We, we, we have to say, I believe in God. And that creates a sort of a misunderstanding, and that's James tries to, tries to clear that up. It's almost like as if James, not even knowing the English language, understands there's going to be some confusion about this. And he says, it's not about believing in God. Demons believe in God. It doesn't change their outlook on life or who they are. And so often you see people, they think that believing in God is simply about, well, yeah, I believe there's a God. Yeah, okay. I guess that means I'm saved. No. Demons have the same faith that you're talking about. He says actual faith. He says faith without action is dead. It's not actual faith. The kind of faith that leads to a sort of a relationship with God is where you trust God enough that you will do what he says. And, and if you think about that in your relationship with people, you know, what you do based on your trust in them uh, is an outflow of that relationship. In other words, the more you trust somebody, the more, and the more you trust that they have their best interest in mind, and they know what they're talking about, the more you'll do what they're encouraging you to do. Um, so a friend of mine was doing some home renovations, and Pastor Chris and I, we've done a lot of them over the years, okay? A lot. Um, we've renovated multiple houses, built houses from scratch. I mean, there's very few things in a house that he and I can't do. And so we came over to help this guy and said, hey, listen, when you do this, you know, do this and do this and do this. And, and he was kind of like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm doing. It's like, you ever done this before? No. All right, all right. And so we just, in a very loving way, we just kind of go, you sure you want to do that? All right, man, it's your place. I'm just going to tell you, this is what I would do if I were you. And then we'd walk outside and we'd laugh because um, <laughs> we'd watch him not do it. And over time, though, he made enough mistakes and made enough phone calls and watched us work enough where eventually he's like, hey, 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 what do you think I ought to do with this? You see, because eventually he began to trust we had his best interest in mind and we knew what we were talking about. The problem a lot of us have with God is we think we know more than God does. We don't trust that he has our best interest in mind. And so we spiritually, very immaturely, look at the scripture, and we somehow think that, I wrote this down because I thought this was funny, we somehow think that your opinion matters when it comes to what the Bible says. Like, I know, I know God says it's a sin, but here's what I think. A sign of spiritual maturity is thinking your opinion matters in light of what God's truth says. Everywhere else, it seems like as if you feel like your opinion matters. Well, this is my house. I know what I'm doing. I, I, this is kind of the way I want it to look. Well, this is what I'm going to need to be able to get this done. Okay, go for it. 
Take a hammer, destroy the whole house if you want. Just demo's fun. You know how quick demo is? You could demolish a house in a day. Better yet, a two-year-old <laughs> with a hammer can demolish your house in a day, right? How long does it take to rebuild? See, an idiot thinks they're making really good progress because they did all their demo in one day. Somebody wise realizes it's going to take months for you to fix all those things. That's why one of my rules of home renovation is one project at a time, one room at a time. Anybody learn that lesson the hard way? You got your bathroom torn up, your kitchen torn up. Pretty soon you realize, oh my goodness, I don't have a single running sink in the house. Yeah, follow those rules, right? Spiritual maturity is where you look at the scripture and say, well, I don't, think, I don't see anything wrong with it. Like your opinion matters. You know what God, you know what God when, when God confronts Paul, Paul thinks he's out doing the right thing early on and, you know, whatnot. And when God first confronts Paul over in Acts chapter 26, he talks about this. And Jesus asks him this question. He says, Paul, how long will you continue to kick against the goats? Now, we're not farmers. We don't really understand that. A goat is basically, picture like a cattle prod, picture like a pointy stick that you would use to herd animals to where they need to go. And so what God often does through life circumstances uh, and whatnot, he, he's pushing you in the direction you need to go. But what happens if you kick against a sharp object? It really hurts, doesn't it? If you bump up against that sharp object, you keep ramming against it. It really hurts, right? And, Paul, and God's looking at Paul and he says, how long will you continue to bump up the sword of truth that is the, my word in your life? How long will you continue to kick against that to your own injury and your own fault? For some of you right now, the question I got to ask you about spiritual maturity is, how long will you continue to think that your opinion matters when it comes to God's word? How long will you continue to try to do it your own way and suffer the consequences for it? Spiritual maturity is when you begin to have the faith where you trust that God knows what he's doing. His ways are not your ways. Your, his thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's, that's the chasm between your idea and your opinion and what God knows, right? He says, how long will you continue? Spiritual maturity is where at some point you begin to say, okay, God, I'm going to do it your way this time. Another sign of spiritual maturity is, and that same idea of understanding God knows what he's doing is, at what point will you quit asking God why and just trust him? This was the, the, the maturity of Job over the book of Job. Job wants to know why, 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 why. And the culmination of Job, the book of Job, is where God comes and he says, Job, can you just trust that I know what I'm doing? I can't explain it to you right now. It's kind of above your pay grade and above your mentality to be able to understand this. Can you just trust I know what I'm doing? I don't explain to my toddler why he needs to put on his shoes. I just tell him to put on his shoes, right? I, I can't explain everything to, to a five-year-old, and you have no more of a brain than a five-year-old has before God. You really don't. As smart as you may be and as much as you may have figured out, God can't explain to you all the whys. And so he just says, part of spiritual maturity is where you say, you know, I don't know why this is happening. I just trust God in the midst of this, and I'm just going to keep on going forward. And so much of my life and maturing in God is just getting to the point where I just quit asking the why question and I just accept that God is and I trust that he knows what's best and I follow after him wherever he goes. And so this uh, work that's produced by your faith, it's what you do based on your relationship with God, what you do on the fact that you trust God with what he says to do in the direction he's leading you. That's, that's what your work, what you end up doing. But then he says, and you are labor prompted by love. And so you have these two words. One is work by faith and labor by love. And they almost seem like they're synonyms, like as if he's just sort of bringing out a different, you know, same word. It's actually a different word in the Greek. That's why I thought it was kind of funny. I knocked on using Greek. But this word really talks more about the effort that you're expending. 
Uh, because this word laborer, it, it's a word that sort of talks about the agony or the pain that's associated with something. We even use the words, it was a labor of love, right? And typically when, when you make that response, we goes, oh my goodness, how long did it take you to do this? How much did this cost you? You know, why would, you, why would anybody spend that kind of time and that kind of money and that kind of effort to do something like this? And you say, oh, it was a labor of love. In other words, if you were going to, you know, if you think I'm going to punch a clock to do, do a job like this, ain't going to happen. You couldn't hire somebody to do a job like I've done because they just wouldn't put forth the effort. But when you're doing a labor that's prompted by love, it's all about the effort that is put into it. And so what God's saying here is, is that when, when somebody has a loving relationship with God that will last for all eternity, their effort, what they put into something, changes. So, like, for instance, a spiritually immature person will ask the question, what's the minimum God requires? And maybe some of you all have seen employees like that. What's the minimum you're requiring of me before you'll fire me? What's the minimum you'll require of me before I get written up? What's the least I can do and still get paid? Don't you love those employees? God feels the same way about your relationship with him when you act like that. It's sort of like the teenager says, well, 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 well pastor, you know, they ask in the youth pastor, well, well, on a date, you know, with my girlfriend, how far is too far, you know? What's the maximum uh, I, I can extract? What's the maximum innocence I can steal from this young girl before God gets upset? <laughs> right? That is a sign of spiritual immaturity, right? That's a sign of, of immaturity before God. Mature begins to ask God, I want to be as holy as I possibly can. What can I do? You know, how is it that I can get closer to you and do more for you? you, know, what, 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 is, you know, what, what is it that I can do to show you how much I love for you? And you, you think about the, the difference in the, in the minimum mentality uh, mindset versus the love mentality. Uh, years ago, I talked about giving. You know, God loves a cheerful giver. There's a difference between a cheerful giver and a person who says, well, what, what's, what's the minimum God asks before he's going to get mad and cursed by finances? Uh, we talked about the motivations for giving. Base motivation to do anything is guilt. You've been guilted into doing stuff, right? That's, that's like the most base motivation. Well, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm a horrible person. I don't want to feel like I'm a bad Christian, so I guess I'll give. I guess I'll serve, you know. I mean, I don't know. She talked about serving earlier, and well, okay, I guess I'll do it because everybody else is doing it. Okay, I, I'll do it. Just so. That's guilt. Very bad motivation. Second motivation that many people think is a sign of spiritual maturity is where you do it out of obligation. Well, this is what God requires, so I will do it. I will check off the box. God wants 10%, I will give 10%. Uh, you said we need to you know, worship an hour, serve an hour, groups an hour. Okay, I'll serve the hour because you told me I had to. And if I'm going to be a good Christian, i got to do it. So you're doing it out of obligation. God wants you to do it out of love. And you think about the relationships you have and things that people have done for you. There are people who do things out of guilt, people who do things out of obligation, and then there's people who do things out of love. Of course, God wants you to be someone who does something out of love. That you would look at you know, him and, the, and what he's given you. And at what point do you realize, with everything God has done for me, how can I not give this back in return? I mean, I mean what to, how do you ever repay God? You ever had somebody do something for you that was so amazing, that was so out of the ordinary, that was so grace-filled, that was something you could not possibly have done for yourself, and you look at this person, you have this sense of, how could I ever repay you for what you've done? You ever have that moment? That's the kind of relationship that God wants to cultivate between you and me, or between him and you, where you get to this point where you say, God, with everything you've done for me, how could I ever possibly thank you for what you've done? 
and you're so overwhelmed and, and overfilled with the love of God in your heart, you just, you just can't wait to do it. And that's why when Jesus is talking about, you know, in this last days, uh, when you come before me and you stand before this, this great throne, he says, there'll be people who come before me who, who serve those who were in prisons and help people who were, who were hungry and in need and, and did all of these things and they gave and they served of their time. They did all these things. And he says, when you did any of these things for the least of these, he says, you did it for, for me. You are serving them out of your love for me. And I saw that and I, and I, and I, and I, and I got that. And the more mature you are, the more things you'll do out of your love for God, not out of any obligation or sense of guilt. And so he says, your work uh, that was uh, fueled by your faith, uh, your labor prompted by love. And then lastly, he says, your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember my last semester of college, um, I was graduating early. Um, so I was going to be graduating in December, and which meant that the, the fall semester is just four months. And do you know how hard it is to find somebody who will lease you an apartment for four months, even in a college town? I mean, it is nearly impossible. I searched everywhere. I finally found this gem of a place, um, smelled of cats and mildew, and was conveniently located right next to a freight railroad track. In other words, I found an apartment owner who was, as des- who was as desperate to get his place leased as I was to find a four-month lease. And so I was able to get a four-month lease. And people, when they heard where I was living in the place I was at, they were like, ugh, why are you living there? I'm like, I needed some place for four months. But I kept saying this one thing. It's just four months, man. I can live anywhere for four months, right? Some of you who've been through some things in the military kind of have that same thing. Like, hey, I can do anything for, for you know, after doing that, I can do anything for two months, you know, three months, four months, whatever. You sort of get this, and, and the idea was basically this. I know this apartment's not my forever home right? It's not. It's four months, right? It's four months. It's a means to an end. And four months from now, I'll be living somewhere else, somewhere better. I'll be able to get to go. I'll be able to get to move on with my life. I'll, I'll, I was at Florida State. I was finishing that up. I was really looking forward to going to seminary and kind of getting on with the life that I knew God was calling me to. And so I was like, you know, it's four months. It's no big deal. I just, you know, be here and then I'll be out. In other words, my perspective on the fact that this was a temporary thing fueled my ability to endure which wasn't the best of situations. Your perspective on what your future outlook is will change your ability to endure your present circumstance. Now, so often you hear this uh, phrase that people say, because there's two ways people live. They'll say, well, life's too short to fill in the blank. Life's too short to put up with negative people, man. Life's too short to stay in this relationship. Life's too short to spend my life at a dead-end job. My life too, you know, life's too short to be anything but happy. Right? That's the idea that, you know, hey, you only got so, you only got so long, so don't waste it by, by, by wasting it around these people or doing these kind of things. And, and that's the mentality that basically says, life is short, live for yourself. That's one mentality. The other one that changes to an eternal perspective says, life is short, live for eternity. I mean, think about it. You, you just have a, a very small window of time. And what you do in this life matters for all eternity. I, when, I, when I pulled this rope out years ago, I said, we need to leave this in here because I'm going to be using this for the rest of the time because this is a biblical principle through and through. I talked about how this rope sort of represents all of eternity. And if this rope is all of eternity, like this sliver right here is your life, right? Like this is like your, your childhood, this green part right here. This is like where you're growing up. This blue part is your career, whatever you're doing in life, you know, whether it be a, a homemaker or, you know, doing something military or job, whatever. Then the red's kind of what everybody's living for. Uh, and that's, that's retirement. Oh, my golden years, man, they're going to be great. You know, life's too short to spend all this time with this, right? That's what people say. 
the eternal perspective says, life is too short not to be living for all this. And it changes what your ability to endure is in life. So he says, when I, when I look at you know, the, the life of the people in, in the church in Thessalonica, they're able to endure a lot of things other people wouldn't be able to endure. Why? Because they have this eternal perspective on life. One of my life mottos is live for the blessing. Live for the blessing. Now, blessings don't happen in the immediacy. Blessings follow a life of obedience. And so often we want to chase the, treat, the cheap thrill in the immediacy now and not actually live for the long term in the blessing. Many of you all know my life verse is Psalm 27, 13. It says, I would have despaired. I would have lost all hope. If I did not believe, I would see the goodness of the Lord once again in my lifetime. And I'll tell you this. If I don't see it in my lifetime, I'm okay with that. I fully trust it's coming in the next. You know, if you go back, the very first sermon that's on our, on our website is, is from Hebrews uh, chapter 12, where he talks about how says, you know, there were some people, their life wasn't quite so fortunate Faith didn't seem to pay off in this life. But he says this phrase, he says, their hope was in a better resurrection. A mature Christian is the person who gets to begin to have this perspective. This life is about nothing more than a, than a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that I will enjoy for all eternity. If this life is about he who dies with the most toys wins, you won't endure anything. You'll bail. One of the questions of maturity is, you know, I was back when I was in college, I said, I could do anything for four months. What's your timetable for God? God, I remember there was a season I went through a very difficult time. I looked at God. I said, God, I can give you two years on this. It's hard. It's difficult. I want out, but I'll give you two years on this. A little bit later in life, um, I told God, I, I said, we're, we're, I'm going to make a one-year commitment, and I'll, every year I'll ask you if you still want me here. And so I was like, okay, God, I'll do this for the next year. And then the next year, I'm willing to like re-up, but... You got to make sure, I got I to hear from you for sure. This is where you want me, kind of thing. So I've had these like timetables over time. I finally gotten to the point where I fully understand how short life is. And it's just like, you know, whatever. However long, it's okay. You know? However long. However long the, the difficulty goes, that's okay. Whatever. Life is short but eternity is eternity. And so as you think about where you're at in your own relationship with God and Christian maturity, it's not a matter of how much you know. It's, it's about what is your faith moving you to do? How obedient is your faith to God making you? How much do you wrestle with what the scriptures say and, and that you agree or disagree or think your opinion matters before God and his word? How much, how much time do you spend on asking God why instead of just following after where God says then take the next step and just trusting him along the way? What's your work ethic when it comes to your relationship with God and, and the things that God's called you to do? Is it, is it a labor that's prompted by love? Is it, a, is it a labor of love? Or is it out of some mix of guilt and obligation or trying to impress somebody around you? And then lastly, what's your endurance like? When you look to God, what's your time frame for endurance? God, God if, if, if I have to suffer and deal with this for the next blank, I'm okay. But beyond that, I'm out. What's your timetable for him? The greater you grow in your relationship with God and maturity, the longer that becomes. Even if all my life is nothing more than just a sort of like the cat that God gets to kick whenever he's frustrated. You ever felt like that? If that's my role, that's okay. You know, if it's like that uh, discouragement poster that says, 
at some point the thought occurs to you, maybe your life's purpose is to serve as an example of what not to do for others. If that's it, that's okay, God. That's okay. Peter looks to Jesus at the end of the book of John and he says, says, hey, how's this all going to play out? And Jesus is like, well, it's not going to be so good for you. You're going to end up getting crucified just like me. You know what he says? He points to his buddy John. He goes, okay, as long as it's the same for him too. If everybody's getting the life is, life is hard and life is difficult plan, I'm okay with doing it. But if I'm the only person who's got to suffer and have a hard life, I'm out if, unless everybody gets it. And Jesus looks at me and says, you know, one day, Peter, you'll, you'll mature to the point where you'll be okay with anything. And that's my hope and prayer for you is that you'll get to the point of maturity where there's a work, work that comes out of your faith and a labor out of your love and a hope that produces that kind of endurance. We don't have to close in prayer. Father, at the end of the day, the only way we're going to know where we truly are before you is to take an honest self-examination of our life. And Father, really think through us. Where is my limit of obedience when it comes to your word? How much do I, do I weight my opinion versus your truth? Father, forgive me, Father, for the times where I do my own thing. Forgive me, Father, for my immaturity of, of wanting to know what the least requirement or the minimum requirement is. And Father, help me to expand my limits of endurance with a perspective that understands this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with you that will last for all eternity. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Essential Church Podcast. Let me encourage you to pause for a moment and reflect on what you've heard. It's not the hearing of the word, but the application that makes all the difference. 